Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about how the pandemic and its restrictions have affected world markets and whether we need to change the way we look at macroeconomics. We also look at the current state of UK politics, the regional impacts of the government's tier approach to lockdown, and the latest on the recent restarting of Brexit talks. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Sophie Traherne, UK Government Relations Expert, and Hao Ranwee, Senior Investment Strategist. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. As promised, this week we have one of our favourite guests coming coming back to, to share the world of, of politics and, and Westminster and a bit of Europe, no doubt, uh, Sophie Traherne. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us again. No problem. Lovely to be here. And Will is taking a well-earned break, although although he tells me he's not actually resting. He's, he's busy studying and, and I think there might be some history involved. So watch out for next time he's on, he's on the podcast. But uh, we're joined by Haran from the asset allocation team. Haran, welcome. Thank you so much for coming back. Hello, thanks to be here. We're going to start with, with Sophie. Given we have had the ever-changing world of politics, it's sort of, you know, a bit hard to know where to begin. But, but let's start with uh, perhaps the latest on COVID and this sort of local lockdown approach, which is the new kid on the block, so to speak, of how we are tackling um, coronavirus. So clearly there have been regional disagreements and differences, and, and most notably in the news over the last few days, Manchester and other areas of, of the north. Sophie, can you just tell us a bit about what's happened since the government announced their new three-tier COVID approach and what the political impact of all of this means? Yes, absolutely. So as you say, the government introduced their new system of local COVID alert levels in England. So obviously, we now have different areas of the country with different levels of COVID restrictions called medium, high and very high. And, you know, because this approach means there are regional differences in lockdown restrictions, there have been, as you say, disagreements, tensions between central government and local leaders on which areas should be high and very high and what economic support government is providing to those areas where obviously businesses are having to close or restrict their service or are seeing, you know, fall in in footfall. Now, there have been some successful local deals done in, in some areas to provide additional funding for regions going into that very high level, um, level three. Uh, so, for example, Merseyside, Sheffield and talks are ongoing with Teesside and Nottingham. But obviously, as you say, the dispute between the mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, and the UK government has been very well publicised and received a lot of attention over the last couple of days. And the current situation is that the area will be going into level three um, by the end of the week, with many businesses obviously having to close. And there are still arguments ongoing about whether the economic support package offered by the government is enough. And I suppose, you know, this really highlights the challenge for the government. Devolution has led to these these powerful elected metro mayors across England who are often quite well-known public figures who are able to generate public and media attention. I mean, Andy Burnham, for example, is obviously a former Labour MP. He's run for the leadership of the party twice. So he's got that public profile. And, you know, in a way, this whole debate with Greater Manchester has obviously once again brought into focus the the levelling up agenda and and the kind of wider 
north-south divide narrative. And I should say, of course, it, it isn't just in England. The, the devolved nations of the UK are continuing to take different approaches. We've got Wales uh, entering a national lockdown starting this Friday, lasting until the 9th of November. The, the Welsh First Minister is calling this um, a, a short, sharp lockdown or a kind of time-limited fire break, he's calling it. Um, and this is really the first return to a national lockdown since March. So it will be very interesting to see what impact this has. And very quickly, just going back to the point about economic support from central government, I should say that we have had a further intervention from the Chancellor this week. I believe it's the third economic support package he's announced in a month. And this package includes uh, changes to the job support scheme, further business grants and also support for the self-employed with quite a lot of the focus on those businesses who will be in that COVID alert level two tier who who might be struggling so uh, lots more government announcements this week yeah and 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 lots of lots of coverage in 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 media and and twitter etc because as you say there there are there are huge dispersions in what what businesses can do in different regions we were hearing from ross last week in our business bank you know what they're really hearing on the ground and and seeing and of course you know a lot of it is yet to yet to play out at the sharp end it feels a little bit that that although we're we're a good six and a half months in we're 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 only in a way at the start of of you know really understanding what what the what the impacts are across businesses yeah absolutely how as we see the the restrictions being mirrored or reinstigated in different ways across parts of europe to what extent does that threaten the economic recovery that we've been seeing right the numbers the numbers have been surprisingly good yeah so as we know it's not just the uk that's grappling with a second wave right now other european countries are also having the same problem Uh, while across the atlantic the us itself is already showing signs of undergoing a third wave so just last week we saw a raft of new restrictions being announced simultaneously across the major european countries and uh, in, in our view, that frankly poses a real threat uh, to the recovery that was just starting to show up in the summer months. And this is already starting to show up in the data. Now, if you look at the latest uh, set of business surveys or higher frequency data on mobility trends, retail footfall and consumption, uh, we are already seeing signs that the pace of recovery is slowing. And the major problem here is that these countries haven't even fully recovered to their pre-pandemic levels yet. So uh, these economies, they haven't uh, fully recovered yet. So these new restrictions may actually come to fully unwind the limited gains that we've made since the summer. So yes, it's a real threat right now. Yeah, and so far, I mean, it, it seems like the, the markets have been reasonably sanguine, right? I mean, we've not seen, touch wood, <laughs> anything, anything like the volatility that we saw earlier in, in the year at the end of Q1 and, and early Q2. So why is that? Yeah, uh, for a couple of reasons, I think. For one, I think you can make the case that markets may be still underreacting to these new restrictions for the time being. Now, mm. hindsight is always twenty twenty, yeah. but markets did appear to underreact to the economic threat posed by the coronavirus when China first imposed restrictions back uh, in early this year. So a similar pattern may be unfolding. But aside from that, I also think that the uh, negative coronavirus news flow that we've been seeing has so far been counterbalanced by two things. The first is increased optimism for more fiscal stimulus in the US, 
Uh, that's a potential, uh, potentially big game changer here. And the second is also equally a, a big game changer is rising in anticipation for a working coronavirus vaccine to be available sometime around early next year. I think, frankly, without these two reasons, the reaction from markets to these new restrictions would have been a lot more negative. Got it. And there appears to be a bit of a debate going on about the trade-offs between keeping the economy open versus keeping the coronavirus at, at bay as much as possible, certainly in the UK and the US. Is there necessarily a direct trade-off here that has to be had? Yeah, that's a very good question. As with debates on complex policy issues like this, that's rarely a clear-cut answer, so I'll first caveat that. But um, I would lean on the side of those who argue that this idea of a trade-off is probably a, a flawed one. And this is because the this is because public health and the economy aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. So China is a very good example of this. It was the first country to impose stringent mobility restrictions and the first to suffer a temporary steep loss in output. However, you can credibly argue that those stringent lockdowns played a major role in quashing their domestic outbreak effectively, thus allowing the Chinese economy to reopen without having to go through a second wave. Uh, as a result, uh, China is undergoing a, a V-shaped recovery right now, and the recovery is proceeding a lot more smoothly now compared to the US and Europe. In fact, by some projections, the Chinese economy is set to fully recover back to its pre-pandemic levels by sometime around early next year. So here, China does show that the short-term pain from stringent lockdowns are probably worth it if that's what it takes to secure a more sustainable economic recovery from here. But I think at a deeper level, the pandemic is also prompting us to rethink macroeconomic policy uh, making fundamentally. It's quite clear now that there is a gap between the way we think about public health and the way we think about the macroeconomy. So the pandemic is forcing us to rethink about how we can better integrate public health policy with our current working models of the economy. And such a fundamental rethink in macroeconomics has indeed happened before. So during the early 2000s, we already have relatively good models that try to explain how the financial system and the macroeconomy works. But the problem is that those two were usually two dist distinct strands of research that were independent of one another. It wasn't until the great financial crisis that before that policymakers started to realize the importance of integrating these two strands of research together. So subsequently, uh, a decade later today, the most advanced macroeconomic models used by policymakers and central bankers uh, do incorporate some understanding of the, of the financial system or some sub-model of the financial system within them. So my suspicion is that the pandemic will trigger a similar project. And that's ultimately a good thing. Interesting. Okay, so it sounds like sounds like one for us to watch over the coming months and, and probably years. But Yeah, probably, yeah. So close to home again, Sophie, if I can turn to you and, and the lovely subject of, of Brexit. There's there's obviously been quite a bit of noise in, in recent days, especially. We had the big October European Council summit meeting back on the 15th. We had the Prime Minister deadline for a trade deal seem to come and go somewhat. And it appears that talks may have restarted, although I think I think across every facet of society, there's a bit of a collective eye roll as to what's really happening here. But, but Sophie, can you just shed a bit of light from, from your perspective? Can you just share with us what, what is actually happening? 
Yeah, absolutely. So quite a bit of Brexit noise, as you say, over the last few days. Um, Obviously, we had that big EU Council summit last week where there clearly wasn't any agreement on an EU-UK trade deal. And as you point out, this summit was kind of a, you know, it was it was a key milestone in the talk. Mm. So there was a fair amount of negativity at the end of last week around the state of the negotiations. And the EU's post-summit statement put the ball firmly in firmly in the in the UK's court by saying that the UK needs to make the necessary moves to make an agreement possible. So basically it's the UK that needs to compromise in order to get a deal. And then in response, we had Boris Johnson making a televised address where he he basically pronounced negotiations over unless the EU fundamentally changed its position and showed it was also willing to compromise. So quite a bit of political noise and press attention on the fact that essentially the negotiations had stalled. But then this week, we've had some important meetings and phone calls between the lead negotiators. And as all no doubt have seen, and you mentioned, it was announced on Wednesday evening that the talks are now back on. The EU negotiators travelling to London this week to, for basically full schedule of negotiations, which will last through to Sunday. And it seems the key to getting everyone back round the negotiating table after the weekend was the EU chief negotiator, uh, Michel Barnier, saying to the European Parliament this week that essentially both sides need to compromise, you know, a possible olive branch to the UK to get them back to the negotiations. And the Downing Street statement on Wednesday evening was, was clear that, you know, they welcomed the fact that Barnier acknowledged that movement would be needed from both sides if the talks were going to uh, conclude an agreement. And I suppose all this political drama from the last few days has to an extent allowed the UK government to kind of say that, you know, their robust approach to negotiations is actually working. Yeah. And and given all of this noise and, and the fact that we are so fast approaching the end of the transition period at, at year end, what what do you see happening next? I mean, what, what what's for those in the know, you know, those that are sharp end like yourself, what, what's the view on the prospects for a deal and, and when might we see some some you know real news on this given how time is running out? Yeah, so the dog's back on and there were some positive noises from both sides about getting to an agreement and Barnier said that the EU is willing to work night and day round the clock and until the very last moment to reach deal. But having said that, you know, there still are some significant areas of disagreement. There's a lot of talk in particular at the moment about the challenges around fisheries, quite a bit of attention on the French president's position on France's access to British waters. This is all clearly a very politically charged and totemic issue for both, well, UK, the French and and actually the EU more broadly. So a deal on fish is, is very much front of mind for the negotiations now they're back on. The other issue has, of course, been state aid, although there are some signs of a compromise emerging on this issue. But of course, as you point out, you know, the clock is ticking and the transition period is still due to end on the 31st of December this year. And if a deal is done, there needs to be time to work up the legal texts of the agreement. This could take two or three weeks and then it needs time to be ratified by the European Parliament. So Although there isn't sort of a formal timetable at this stage, the general view is that a deal needs to be done in the next few weeks. So obviously we could be looking at November rather than the end of October for a deal. We should also keep in mind that a deal might 
still not be possible. Um, the statement from Downing Street on Wednesday evening on the resumption of the talks did end by saying that it is entirely possible that the negotiations will not succeed. If so, the UK will enter the transition period on Australian terms and will prosper in doing so. So as ever with Brexit, nothing is certain and a deal, if done, could very much happen at the 11th hour in sort of mid to, to late November. Right. Yeah, it, it's uh, the, the, the Australia style outcome is, is I, think, I think, the one that, that most people look at and go, yeah, but what's the reality there? But anyway, let's, we'll keep really close to it. And, you know, we're, we're, we're pleased to, to have you give us these updates. As soon as there's anything new to update, it would be lovely to have you back. And, and how, given everything that Sophie's just talked about, which clearly impacts the UK you know the EU as well, of course, but but you know being a bit more selfish about it, given where where we're all sitting. How have you seen the UK markets responding to these you know twists and turns, and and you know what what feels like deadlines that then get missed? What do you see happening with respect to the market reflections there? Yeah, so over the past few weeks, uh, we've gotten this sense that uh, UK markets have been relatively more sanguine about uh, no-deal risks, at least compared to previous episodes of brinksmanship, like back in late last year. If you look at, uh, if you keep track of how sterling has been trading over the recent weeks, there's definitely still some no-deal risk being priced in. Uh, but you also do get a sense that the fear factor seems to be a lot less uh, this time. I think the best explanation for this is that investors have sort of gotten used to the usual playbook on these things. Uh, basically, a lot of saber wrestling, a lot of noise and brinksmanship until the 11th hour, followed by some compromise by both sides in the end. At the same time, I also think that markets are also today placing relatively more attention on other issues like the lockdowns and also the prospects of a potential negative rate cut from the Bank of England. So if we sum it all together, our, our judgment is that uh, both the upside and downside risks to UK markets from Brexit are more or less uh, symmetrical from here, i.e. there are no favourable traits for us to take on here tactically. So watch, watch and wait. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Haran. Thank you, Sophie. And thank you to our listeners and subscribers. And we'll speak to you again next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.